So before we go to the Word of God, how about we uh, pray? Father, you're an awesome God. The great thing about your Word, Lord, is when you speak of yourself, you're very clear, you say, the Lord, the Lord is a God who is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. You say also that you, Lord, that you are patient with things. You're also Lord of justice. So, Father, allow us to be faithful to your word. I pray, Jesus, as my King and as the eternal Logos, that you would be the gatekeeper of the words that come from my lips. Guard me from error. And Spirit, I pray that the people that are listening now, you'll guard their ears. Please, I beg of you, that you would discard all things that is from a man and that you would welcome the things to their ears that are from you. Lord, your servants are now listening, so we ask that you please speak to us today. In the name of my King, our Lord above all lords, Jesus Christ. In your name, Jesus, we pray this. Amen. When I was growing up, uh, there was this book and it was called The Gregories. If you were a Latino like we were, you called it El Gregory. Well, that's what we called it in my father's uh, household. But, but anyway, th- this book was carried in pretty much every single car at the time. And no, it wasn't electronic. There was actually pages that you had to flick through manually with your hands in order to find out how to get from A to B. So it was the street directory of the days gone by. Now, I know many of you have no idea what a Gregory's is, so allow me to come back to the modern day of the electronic everything. The Gregory's of today will be the equivalent of, uh, what can we say, of that fabulous app that many of you have at your fingertips called Apple Maps. Now, if you loathe all things to do with Apple, you're probably more acquainted with Google Maps. Uh, It is an awesome little contraption, fabulous and functional. In fact, my sister and I were using it to get here. It's such a, a versatile piece of machinery, and we can thank the Lord for technology as well. But on this version of the Gregory's, the Apple Maps, Uh, it's so extremely versatile that if you stretch the screen, if you stretch the screen, you can zoom right in to show exactly where you are in current space, time, and also the geography, and it concentrates on what is happening in detail in the now and in the close-up. And although it's great to see what is happening in the immediacy of your life and in the immediacy of your journey, you can't really tell what's going to happen up ahead. Just up the road, like you're usually thinking to yourself, if you're too zoomed in, you're thinking, do I have to stay in this lane? Should I get in the right lane? Is there a turn coming up? Should I anticipate the turn? Do I have long to travel on this road? Can I put cruise control in and then check my emails as I'm driving? You're probably also thinking, is there a Macca's on my way where I can stop and buy myself a Big Mac? Well, you just don't know what lies ahead if you've stretched the screen and just zoomed into the action of the now. And sometimes I find that when I've zoomed into the now, too closely into what's going now, I miss a turn. I find I've gone the wrong way. 
And then I have to backtrack and find out my, my path back onto the way that I began. Sometimes I find that I'm holding on unnecessarily, so too tight to the control. Should I turn left? Should I turn right? Should I, when I don't really have to because I have a long way to go and I should just put cruise control on and relax. Other times I find that I miss the last Maccas on my journey and then I have to settle for Red Rooster. It's just, you, you, you see, sometimes, sometimes zooming in too much makes us miss things. And so is the versatility of this modern day Gregory's. If you pinch the screen, then you zoom out. And then you can see the big picture of what's going on, what the path you're on. I can see where this path is leading me. I can see where I am on the way. But not in great, great detail anymore. I can see the overall picture. But because I've zoomed too out, so too far out, I can't really work out the street names anymore on my app. And now I'm back to my initial problem that I had, where I may miss a turn or take the wrong turn. So guess what? I, mean, I know most of us will then have, what, get into the habit of doing it, and we keep stretching the screen, zooming out, to see what is happening in the now. I think zooming in to see what is happening out, to work out what is happening in the right now, but then every so often we give it a pinch so then we can zoom out and see what is happening up ahead, how the fine details work out into the big picture. And this is what is happening here for us in Genesis 19. The Lord's Gregory's has been stretched so that we can zoom into great detail of quite the shocking story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet a sobering, a story as it is, it is but, uh, it is but just a, a zoomed in picture of a greater reality that's unfolding before our very eyes. There is greater depth in this story. It's not just about a promiscuous city being destroyed by the holy judgment of a just God. So what I would like to do today, if you allow me, is to stretch the screen of God's Word, zoom into Genesis 19, highlight a few observations, and then maybe give it a small pinch, just to zoom out a little and see how this story fits into the greater narrative. And then, God willing, if we've got enough time, I looked at the time before I got up, give it another pinch and see if we can zoom even further out to see how this story fits into the totality of God's unfolding plan of redemption. Now, many of you know the story, so I'm not going to recite it for you or in great detail, but what I would like to bring to your attention are seven observations. And I'm going to have to go pretty quickly through them because I usually preach for a long time and you're not used to me, so I'll, I'll try and condense them somewhat. The first observation that I'd like us to set our hearts and minds as we move towards Easter is this. Number one. It's a long one. I'm not sure if you write these things down or not, but the city of Sodom is seized by an uncontrollable urge to sin. It's uncontrollable. And for its grievous, unabashed sin, God will display his holy judgment by destroying it. You know, there is so much that I can speak into this passage. It's 38 verses long. It's massive. I could give a theodicy, that is the, the defence for God's righteous judgement, but that's so difficult that I'm going to leave it for Pastor Porter to tackle that. But what we see here is a city that's lost its way and sin has become the normality. And how I want to show and how this city is an example 
of the world's corruption. So let's zoom in and see how the Lord shows this. So we know the story doesn't begin here in our chapter 19 of Genesis, but we first hear of the impending destruction in Genesis 18, which I know Pastor Paul unpacked for us the unique relationship of Abraham that he shared with the Lord. You know, Abraham is the only person in the Old Testament that is given the title friend of God. You can find that in 2 Chronicles 27 and Isaiah 41.8. So what happens in 18 is that God treats Abraham like a friend. So God deliberates whether to tell him about the impending plans that's coming to Sodom. And he does. And he tells Abraham that, that he's going to destroy this wicked and self-destructing city because of the sin, the decrepitness of it. And it gives us a remi- it makes us reminisce of the times of Noah, doesn't it? Remembering what God said about the times of Noah. Do you remember that in Genesis 6? This is what he said. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That accusation upon humanity isn't enough to give us pause. Well, this next verse should. He continues, verse 6, and the Lord regretted. Have you read that before? The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So God's holiness expresses grievance when he sees his creation has been tainted and it's broken and it has sin within and sinful humanity is incapable of doing anything but evil. And now listen to what he says. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land. This is God speaking. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. And now listen, for I am sorry that I have made them. It's just such a shocking and a sad state of affairs from Eden to Noah to Genesis 19 that man just cannot help himself. Sin-tainted man has a condition within him that cannot be fixed by his own efforts. There's something within all of us that has marred us and no matter how hard we try, no matter how good we think we're going to be, we can't fix that. And so what happens is that man succumbs to his sinful nature. Sodom, you know, it's like Noah all over again and God must be shown as holy and just. And he must eradicate wickedness from his creation. But then we see the friend of God. He goes into bat for Sodom. Abraham begins negotiating with the Lord Almighty. You you heard it last week. I heard Paul's servant. Isn't it amazing the guts of this man standing before Yahweh? What about if there's 50, Lord? If there's 50 people, are you going to uh, destroy Sodom? What about 40? 40. Let me not be so bold, but what about 30? 20. And he gets them all the way down to 10. And the Lord is just so patient with him. Isn't he great with us? That even in salvation we begin to negotiate with him. 50, 40, 30. God could just go, what? No, he just he condescends to us. And God says, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. So then we see two angels that come into the city of Sodom and they see Lot sitting at the gate. You know in antiquity, the place of influence and the place where debates and negotiations were addressed was at the gate of the entrance to the city. Now, I'm not going to go too much in detail because we've got a lot of ground to cover, but the fact that Lot sits at the gate gives us the impression that he may have had influence. If he doesn't have influence, at the very least, he's comfortable. Lot is comfortable in this city. 
With influence or not, we see that the sin of the people has such a hold on them that Lot is helpless to stop them sinning. So then two angels go to stay at Lot's place and then we read. I encourage you to open your Bibles now to Genesis 19. This is what it says in verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, I'm reading from the ESV, by the way, the only true translation, and all the people of the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them. The NIV is great because it's just straight to the point that we may have sex with them. That's exactly what they wanted to do. But look how Moses wants us to be clear that the city acts as a whole. Did you pay close attention? He's emphasising the depravity of a whole city. In other words, there is none righteous here. None. Look how he says it. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, just in case you weren't aware where we're at, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. Moses wants us to see that sin has spread to the whole city. And it gets worse because the depravity hasn't just infected that city and those people, but it has also infected the next generation. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old. It's intergenerational. So now let's zoom out a little bit. You know, this city is a shadow of the real world. Sodom acts like a mini world. God uses this city to, to give us a picture of what the world is like and how God will bring judgment. You know, if we give another pinch and zoom a little bit further out, we would hear an echo of Paul with such depravity. He, he ties it to not just a city, but to a whole world. And he begins in Romans 1 discussing the, the sinful nature of humanity, that they suppress the knowledge of God. He goes in the, uh, chapter 2 to express they have no excuse. And then in chapter 3, Paul says this, verse 9 of Romans. We have already charged that all... All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That should confront all of us because what is being said here, you know, we as Christians of the 21st century, we sometimes think that we're exceptions to this rule. He's talking about those people. But we're in Liverpool Baptist. We are all right. He says, none is righteous. We all, all created humanity was born and lives as an enemy of God. And yet the Lord offers his mercy and his grace in salvation to all sinners, to all who are worthless in their sin, buckled by the bondage of evil, God sends out a call to turn from your evil ways. He says, repent. Why would you want to keep on sinning when God is offering you salvation? We treat the Lord in this world as though he's offering misery. And we can't see that he's saying, come out of darkness and into life. The story of Sodom, Sodom, is not just about judgment. It's also about salvation. And if we were to give God's Gregories another pinch and zoom further out, we would hear Peter say the same thing. Sodom is an example of judgment for all, but also a display of God's method of seeking out his righteous people. This is how Peter says it. 
Second Peter 2.6 says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, that's God, condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to, a, to the ungodly. See, there's the judgment. Judgment will come and it will be to those who reject God and oppose God. But there's also a call for salvation. There's also a call for salvation. Peter continues, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, verse 9 then says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Sodom is an example for us to see how God will in fact judge this world, but at the same time God sends out a call for his righteous people. Calling out a people to stop doing evil, to turn to the Lord, the Saviour. And so the appeal of the messenger of God rings out to repent, to stop and to turn from the evil ways and that's what Lot does. Let's go back in, zoom in to Genesis 19, verse 7 says, Lot says to them, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. There's the call to, the re- to repent. Stop regressing into your sinful desires. Can't you just stop? Why would you want to keep on sinning and opposing God who created you? If only they would just stop and listen, that the hearts would be flexible, that the Spirit would enable the heart of stone to be ripped down and inserted by his perfect surgery, a heart of flesh. Which brings us to observation number two. God will bring judgment on this world just like Sodom, but not before God calls people to repentance, seeking the righteous. And yet in the very next breath, when Lot calls people to repentance, Lot Lot reveals his wickedness. So there's a call, but what does he tie the call to repentance with? Look at verse 8. Behold, this is Lot responding to the actual people of Sodom, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men. Lot has been tainted by the wretchedness of the city. Lot has replaced wickedness with wickedness. He says, don't violate these men, these angels. Don't touch them, but you can violate my virgin daughters. What's wrong with this man? Takes us to observation three. The deep the deeper that we plunge into the world, the more the world will taint us. And trying to do the right thing with these angels, Lot displays just how much this city, without its moral compass, has disoriented his own moral virtue. He won't allow the men of Sodom to violate the angels, but Lot will give up his virgin daughters instead. Lot has become just like them. So it shows us that even Lot needs repentance. Even the righteous in the city need salvation. Even we need repentance. Even we need to be cleansed of our sin and evil. So when you zoom out a little bit, we'll hear Paul speak, give a caution about this moral confusion, this moral, moral anarchy, this moral decline that we are experiencing in the world today. And we hear him caution us in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, and he tells us, he preambles it with, do not be deceived. He says, don't be deceived. 
bad company ruins God good morals. You know, we as Christians need to be protective and on guard as to what and who we allow in our social area of influence. You know, it's impossible to, for us to continue to live amongst a twisted and crooked, crooked generation and not be affected or influenced by it. The deeper we plunge into this world, the more this world will taint us. And when it taints us, it does influence us and distorts our morality. You know, we laugh at the things that we shouldn't. We watch TV shows that are crass. Nowadays, the popular one is Modern Family. We watch the modern show Modern Family, modern, so it's, influ- it's inferring that this is just the standard of today. They have a homosexual couple there. They adopt a child and it's funny. You know, it's, it's harmless. And then just recently we see Beauty and the Beast come out, don't we? And it's a Disney feature. And part of the Beauty and the Beast that is aimed at our children, they have a homosexual infatuation throughout the show. And we take our children to watch this. And then the children accept this as the norm. Both young and old. We, we do this to our children. And our children watch it and they accept it and say, well, there's no difference to modern families there. You know, and, then we, and then our children come up to us and say, Mum, Dad, why do Christians not like these lovely homosexual people? Mum, Dad, why, why shouldn't we allow these lovely same-sex couples to get married? After all, Mum, Dad, I see you laughing at Modern Family, so it must be okay. And you've taken me to watch Beauty and the Beast, so we pay. We pay to be entertained by this stuff. So, Mum, Dad, what, what's wrong with it? We laugh at it. It's, isn't it our entertainment? We all need salvation. The deeper we plunge into the world, the more the world will taint us. We all need salvation. Yes, we do. We all need repentance and we all need the mercies of God. When the world taints us, it will in fact influence us. Which brings us to observation number four. The more we listen to the world, the more we listen to the world, the less we listen to the Lord. You know, verses 9 to 13, the, the violence begins against uh, the angels. They want, they want the angels to come out. And then all of a sudden it turns against Lot. So the angels grab Lot, they blind everybody and then they say, Lot, we're going to destroy this city because of all the wickedness. So then he has to get out and he has to leave now. Lot rushes out to his loved ones and what is their response? Verse 14, so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters. So there's family. Ah, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy this city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting, NIV, joking. Lot's having a laugh. We don't take Lot seriously, do we, about God's judgment? Zoom out with me a little bit. It's just a little bit typical of the world for us now, isn't it? Although this seems a little bit tame. I don't think the world looks at us anymore and says, ah, look at those Christians. Boy, they're comical. Look at Wally's preaching, Pastor Paul. Look at Liverpool Baptists. They're just so funny people, aren't they, talking about the second coming and about this judgment? The world of today looks at Christians as though we're nuts. 
or just plain stupid really. It's the same way they would have looked at Noah, a hundred years building an ark. What's wrong with you, Noah? What do you mean water coming from the skies? What do you mean? Two animals of what? Of a couple of kinds? No, every kind. That's insane. You are delusional, Noah. Christian, do not be surprised by the world's rejection of your pleas. But Noah abandoned the commission of reaching all nations. That's your commission. Hold dear to what Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand because they are spiritually discerned. The world hears our pleas and they think it's folly, it's madness, it's stupidity because the Spirit of God first needs to do surgical operation on their hearts and there is to understand, but the only way that the Spirit of God does that is through the preaching of the Gospel. It's the power of God of salvation. Therefore, do not be ashamed, Christian, of the Gospel. Keep preaching. Do not become despondent by what the world thinks of you. Don't give up. Do not be dismayed. Because when we allow the world to convince us that we have no substance to what we believe, you know it paralyzes us and it cripples us and we go in a corner, towel between our legs, we get scared. You are a child of the living God. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? You know what that means? Have you contemplated that? I have the power of the God that said, let there be light, and he creates nebula. And is inside me. The transcendence of God is so spectacular and yet the eminence of God is so within me. That's your power. Don't be scared. Don't be like Lot. Look what happens to him as soon as his relatives just laugh at him, thinking that he's joking. Look what happens, verse 14. Let me get it from the last part of 14. But when he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting, verse 15, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your daughters who are here lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Now look at how Lot reacts. Verse 16. But he lingered. And I mean, he hesitated. A moment ago he was warning the others to leave and now he's paralyzed. He lingers. What happened to the urgency? Is he paying more attention to the people of the world, to his family, than to the Lord? Observation five, the more we become desensitized by the world, the more we will love it. That's a big problem in the church. The more we listen to the world, the less we focus on God, the less we focus on God, the more we focus in the right now. The more we stretch out our lives and zoom in, the more we'll care and love the now, the more we will hang on to this world because we haven't zoomed out enough to see where our destination is. Where are we heading? Where are we going? That's what happened to Lot's future son-in-laws. All they had to do was, all they had to do, all we have to do is just zoom out a little bit. Have a look at the big picture. But they don't. And in the same time, Lot was the child of God. The Lord promised Abraham that he would not destroy the righteous and just as just it would be for God to do as he pleases, he grabs Lot and saves him. Notice that God saves him. 
God doesn't go, he lingered. Listen to verse 16. But he lingered. So the men, angels, so the man seized him and his wife and two daughters by the hand. He's no longer listening. He's like the men are coming up to him, grabbing him, going, Now let's go, Lot. Sometimes we have to be dragged into the kingdom of God. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis. I promise not to go into many parentheticals. But that's what he said, kicking and screaming. And yet the greatest joy to go in the kingdom of God. That's what happens because then I don't know where I am. You see? But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. My favorite bit of the whole chapter. The Lord being merciful to him. Have you got the scenario? He hears the angels, get out, get out. So he goes to his family, get out, get out. He's saying, ha, 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 ha. He listens to them and goes, oh, maybe I got it wrong. The angels grab him and they take him out with his family to show the mercy of God. God could have just said, all right. God is merciful. And they brought him out and set him aside. So observation number six. Can we possibly live out observing the mercies of God? The title of his sermon is Observation 6. God shows mercy through his intercessor in saving lots like us. That is what's happening here. Our Heavenly Father loves us and he's sovereign. And when we think we're the ones in control of our salvation, the Lord condescends and he reminds us that he's the Lord mighty to save. The Lord condescends to us and God shows us mercy through his intercessor in saving lots like us. Where is that found in that chapter? Verse 29. So was that when God destroys the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. Why didn't he remember Lot? God remembered Abraham. God remembered his friend. God remembered the intercessor. And set Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Zoom out again. You know, the St. Peter that said that God is using Sodom as an example of judgment and salvation now shows us this specific example in one beautiful verse. Our study group, we're memorising about seven of these verses together. And it goes like this in 1 Peter 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, according, it says his, but according to your great mercy, you have caused me to be born again. Through. How, Lord? Through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. See, God shows mercy. He brings you to new life and he does it through the intercessor of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the only one that deserves glory. God shows his mercy ultimately through Jesus, the intercessor. Here's my last observation, number seven. I can see the finish line up ahead so you can start... I'm buttoning the top. Observation 7 says this. I wonder if you paid close attention to the last sad part of that chapter. Salvation can be squandered. It's difficult. 
Have you ever heard the aphorism or the idiom that says, it doesn't say that, but it says this, out of the frying pan into the fire? They were told not to look back, not to covet, not to miss, not to desire your old lives, but to trust in the Lord that wherever you're going forward, don't look back, don't desire the things that you left behind. Just go forward. Stop looking back. In verse 26, we see Lot's wife. I had, some, I had another 15 pages for this, just this verse, but did you notice that she's behind him? And she looks back. But there's also another point that I, I promised myself I wouldn't do it, now I'm doing it. But the angel said, it's not until you arrive at Zoar that, you, that this city will be destroyed. So has, has they, have they arrived and she gone back to look? Because the city is destroyed once they're in the city. The point being, she looks back. She's lost. She shows that what she really values, what she really values and trusts is not God. It's not what God's offering. I still like that. You want to go back and, you know, you, you muck around with it. I've got to move on. The second thing, and what about the daughters, verses 30 to 38? Likewise, not trusting in the Lord to provide future generations. You know what they do? They go up, make their father drunk. And they get pregnant by him. And they continue the perverse ways of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, the the offspring from them, again, uh, I I do too many tangents. This is common for me. The the Amorites and the Moabites are forever the enemies of Jerusalem, the people of God. Lot's wife was saved from the salt and fire only to be turned into a pill of salt and the daughter saved from the wickedness of the Sodomites only to spread its morality. What will you do with the gift of your salvation? Because salvation can be squandered. You can be in the frying pan one moment and into the fire the next. Now Jesus warned us to have our hearts away from this world, detached from the earth. Don't look back like Lot's wife. The dilemma is if that we crave the best of this life and the best of the next life, we may be left with neither. So Jesus zoomed into Genesis 19 when he was around and he said this in Luke 17, 28. Just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying, selling, planting and building, just like now. That's what he's saying. It's just like, in the times of Lot, they were buying, selling, joking, that they were hanging out. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. In other words, when the Lord of glory splits the skies and comes back to redeem his very people, don't be seen as holding too tight to the world. And then he says these last remarkable words, verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus said that. So I conclude with this. How are you handling the Gregories of your life? Have you stretched the tapestry of life and zoomed in on the fine details? Are you acutely aware of what is happening today and tomorrow? Or have you sort of like pinched it a little bit and you're pretty much aware of your five-year plan? I know where I want to be at work in the next five years. I want to be vice president or president. I actually want to just be paid more. You know what kind of car you want to buy. 
What kind of, if it's possible, what kind of house to buy in Sydney? You may know what, who you want to date, marry, how many children you want to have, but that's it. That's where your Gregory's ends, just enough detail so it's not comfortable, discomfortable, so it's not uncomfortable. But what I ask you now, if you're listening to me now, grab the Gregory's of your life and pinch it. Where are you in 10 years? Now give it another pinch. 25 years. Where are you? In 45 years from now, where is your destination? Where are you heading now? Have you turned the wrong way? Sometimes we can turn the wrong way. We're going round and round in the city of Sodom. I beg now that you would zoom back in to examine the path. Did you take the wrong turn somewhere? Was it 10 years ago? Was it five years ago? Was it one year ago? It's time to get back on the right way. It's just no ordinary way. Not the way of the world. Not the way of Sodom. But there is a way. And only a few take it. But it's going to be very, very hard. Christianity is not easy. And Jesus said this, 7.13, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those that enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. But what if now you're saying, I want to find the way, but I don't have the coordinates for my Gregory's. I'm lost. What Jesus says, be lost no longer. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Lord Jesus now calls He's calling to us. You want to find your way, then zoom in to the person and the works of Jesus Christ, the Lord. For it is through him, the true intercessor, that God shows mercy in saving lots like us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word in Genesis 19. Thank you that you allow us to somehow see by the help of your future prophets, by the help of your future authors like Paul, Peter and our master, the great teacher, Jesus, to see that this is just a zoomed in version of a greater reality. I pray, Lord, if we are lost, that you help us find our way. But let us not be lazy, Lord, to make our own path back but I pray that you would bless us to find the way in Jesus, the true intercessor of our lives. In your name, O oh Lord, I ask this. Amen.